Let's open in our Bibles to 1 Timothy, chapter 1. We said that today is CPC's birthday. We're celebrating one year old today as a church, and we've experienced a lot of the terrors and the joys, the highs and lows of being a one-year-old church plant, which is not unlike being a one-year-old child. There's a lot to um, consider, there's a lot to do, there's a lot to think about, but this has been a joyful time for us. And I think it's very fitting to begin a new series uh, as we think about the birthday, the one-year birthday of this church plant, on the pastoral epistles. We're going to be spending the next several months looking at Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus in First and Second Timothy and Titus. These are kind of different letters for Paul because most of Paul's letters, of course, were written to churches. He would write to the church in Corinth and the church at Ephesus. But in these letters, he is writing to individuals, to Timothy and to Titus. And you can picture these two men kind of like pastoral interns. He's sending them in into brand new church plants, and he's instructing them on how they're going to do ministry. And so we get to sit shoulder to shoulder with these fellow brothers as a brand new church ourselves. We're trying to figure out what it looks like to be a new church in a city, to have new leadership, to start new ministry in a place that's needy for Jesus, and we need help. We as a church need Jesus. And so I find us today and for these next several months sitting shoulder to shoulder with Timothy and with Titus and saying, Paul, give us a spirit-inspired vision for who God is and what he's doing and how we participate in his work in our city. We're going to do that together by God's grace. And this morning, I'm just going to read from 1 Timothy 1 and the first two verses. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, would you bring to us this morning grace and mercy and peace as we open your word and study it together? Would you guide us and teach us by your Holy Spirit? We ask humbly in Jesus' name, amen. You know, especially when you start a new book of the Bible or, or one of Paul's letters, you've got to get the context of this thing, right? You've got to understand two elements from two verses. What's the historical context and what's the spiritual context? What's the historical context of this letter? What's happening? Who's writing this? Why are they writing? And what's the spiritual context? How do we discern what's happening between Paul and between Timothy? So we're going to look at each of those in turn, but I want us to start with the historical context. We open up a brand new letter, and we read these kind of salutations or greetings. This is Paul writing to Timothy, and we quickly realize that we've picked up somebody else's mail, right? This is a letter that's going to somebody else, and we've intercepted it. And to do that well, we need to understand what's being said. Now imagine if you're sitting in your high school math class, God forbid you're back in high school and back in math, and you see a note by your feet and you pick it up and open it and it says, Dear babe, I only have eyes for you. Signed your boo. I mean, that's awesome. But everything, and in high school, I mean everything, stands or falls on the context of this note, right? Who's writing this note? Who's it to? And what does it mean? I mean, who is writing this note? Is this a fellow student that you've had a crush on? That's amazing. Is it a teacher? That's not amazing. That's illegal. They can't do that. Um, 
And then who is this to? Is this to you? Did you really get this note? Or did you intercept it from the guy behind you? And it's really meant for him. What's the context? What's going on? Are we a month out from prom? Or is this April Fool's Day? You can't, quote unquote, get to the meat of the letter without understanding who's writing and who are they writing to and why are they writing this letter. In the same way, that's how we open our Bibles. Every book we turn to, and especially as we think about this letter, 1 Timothy, today, we're being introduced to people and places, and we need to get our historical bearings, right, to make any sense of the quote-unquote meat of this letter that's before us. So Paul says he's writing to Timothy, and in verse 3 he says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. So now we've got people, we've got a place, and it's imperative for us to understand something about Ephesus and something about what Paul has done and seen in Ephesus if we're going to make sense of this letter. The story of Paul and the journey that God sent him on is an incredible one. He introduces himself in this letter as an apostle, and we know that that what he means by that is he has been counted with the original twelve. He's become an eyewitness of Jesus' resurrection. And as Jesus drew him to himself in that radical conversion story, Jesus also sent him out to be an apostle, to be a missionary to Gentiles, non-Jews, those who don't know Jesus and have never heard the gospel before. And so Paul embarks on this incredible ministry, which will take him for the next 25 years all over the Mediterranean world, leading people to Jesus and planting churches and traveling by foot or by ship some 15,000 miles. This is incredible in Paul's day. That almost ranks him alongside of Alexander the Great, who traveled 19,000 miles. This was an incredible ministry. And by the Spirit of God, Paul saw amazing things. He saw people come to faith, and he saw churches planted. And you can read about that in the book of Acts. But one of my favorite church plants in all of Paul's ministry is the church that's planted in Ephesus. Ephesus, in Paul's day, was a leading city. It's a capital. It also has a very important harbor. If you wanted to transport goods all the way from Rome to India, you could do that and pass through Ephesus. So it was a city on the rise and a city that may have had as many as 200,000 people, which in Paul's day is a megacity. This is a massive, uh, wealthy city that's on the rise. But it's not an easy city because it's a city that's steeped in idolatry and immorality. We know that there was a temple to Artemis. It's one of the seven wonders of the world, and it was in Ephesus. And the Ephesians were very proud of this temple as they worshipped Artemis. We also know that there was grave immorality here. I haven't in my life been able to visit many of the the biblical sites, but I have been to Ephesus, which is in modern-day Turkey. And you can tour this city, and it's a beautiful city, and very prominent in the city is the public library, and then the marketplace that leads off to the right. As we were taking our tour, our tour guide kind of grabbed us aside and took us off the beaten path to a very large building with lots of small rooms in it. And he said to us, this is the city's brothel. This is where prostitutes do business. And as he was showing us through this building, he pointed to a tunnel. And he said, this is the tunnel that leads from the brothel to Ephesus Public Library. You could go to the public library in Ephesus and take a tunnel to the brothel. And I don't understand why Ephesian women didn't understand this spiked interest in reading among their husbands. But you could go to the library and find yourself in the brothel. And this was common knowledge in Ephesus. And this was happening. 
Ephesus is kind of the wild west of church planning. Grave immorality, grave idolatry. And Paul shows up here for the very first time in Acts 18. He preaches. Uh, he sees some fruit of his work. And so he leaves behind an important couple, Priscilla and Aquila, to carry on. And then he comes back in Acts 19. And what he begins at that point in Ephesus is his longest stay anywhere. Paul may have stayed up to three years in Ephesus preaching and teaching in the early AD 50s. Now, Paul is, is preaching to this downtown church plant. We're talking about a small house church in Ephesus. We don't know how big this thing was. We don't even know if it grew to multiple house churches. But think small. The CPC would be a mega church in Ephesus. Paul spends his time preaching and teaching there. But as Paul always does, he doesn't just stick with Ephesus. He uses those three years to begin to go out into surrounding areas, right? His concern is multiplication, and he goes out and he takes co-workers with him all throughout this Asia region so that by the time he's done three years in Ephesus, Luke, who's writing this account in Acts, can say the gospel was preached to every person in Asia. The gospel went out from Ephesus and everybody heard this thing because this was an active church in reaching its neighbors. Crazy things start to happen in this church plant. Miracles happened on such a grand scale that people are actually able to take like handkerchiefs and touch Paul with them and then go and the spirit of God would use that same handkerchief to heal somebody of whatever their ailment was. Now, this is a city that's steeped in spirituality and magic and divine things, and they're amazed by this. And so some people try to start copying Paul. And there's seven guys in particular who are brothers. They're all sons of a Jewish priest named Sceva. And they say, hey, if Paul's doing this, we can do this. They find a man who's possessed by a demon. They approach him. They try to exorcise the demon. And the demon turns to them and rebukes them. He said, hey, guys, I know who... Jesus is, and I know who Paul is, but I don't know who you are. And he jumps on them and beats them up, and the seven men run naked. Now, when people see that, that begins to change the atmosphere of a city. When you witness something like that, and people begin to come forward in droves, pulling out magic books and artifacts that they've had in their house, and they burn them in the center of the city. They're so amazed by what God is doing, they burn these magic books to the tune of 50,000 silver pieces. I mean, this is incredible what's happening. That stirs up strife from those who lead the temple in Artemis. There's a riot that's there, and Paul has to get out of there. He has to flee, and he does so. But he's able to come back to Ephesus one more time, and that happens in Acts chapter 20. I plead with you to read this account, 18, 19, and 20 in Acts, but especially Acts chapter 20, because Paul, as he comes back to this city, he realizes he's probably not going to see these brothers again. And instead of doing ministry in the city, he takes the leaders from the church in Ephesus and he takes them to the beach where his ship's about to part. And he spends a little bit of time with them. And he says in Acts 20, pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. There are fierce wolves that are coming the moment I board this ship. They are false teachers and they will rip into this church body like wolves' teeth into little lambs and they will dismember the walk and the witness of any believer in this church who will let them. He exhorts them, watch over this flock. Persecution is coming and it's mostly going to come from within. Well, this is a moving scene. Paul embraces these brothers. They weep together. 
They pray together, he boards the ship, he leaves, and he never sees this church again. What we have in our hands is a letter that Paul writes probably several years after the fact. He's gone on on and done ministry. He's been arrested and he's in prison in Rome. He's got out of prison at the end of Acts 28. And he writes this letter to young Timothy. And he's saying to Timothy, look, I know you're young and I know you're new to ministry. I have a very big task for you. I need you to go back to this church that's been planted in which the very things I promised were happening are happening and false teachers are in their midst. And young Timothy, by your life, by your character, by your doctrine, by your teaching, by your public reading of scripture, I want you to walk into this lion's den and contend for the faith. That's the historical context in which Timothy is receiving this letter. And you can imagine a little bit of trepidation as he understands this is what Paul wants him to do. That's the historical context. It's important for us to get a little bit of the spiritual framework behind these two men and how this relationship is blossoming. Paul writes in verse 2 to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now we could say with the the demon to the sons of Sceva, I know who Jesus is and I know who Paul is, but who's Timothy? Who's Paul writing this letter to and who's this man receiving this and why is he up for the task of this important work in Ephesus? Well, let me give us us a brief sketch of Timothy, um, but I really want to dig into the spiritual relationship between these two men. Paul probably first met Timothy in Acts 14. He comes to Lystra and Derbe on his second missionary journey. He begins to preach the gospel. Timothy was probably there, and Timothy was probably converted at that time, though we don't hear about him at that time. He shares the gospel with him. Um, Timothy himself was uh, the son of a mixed marriage. So his father was Greek, and his mother was Jewish, and he grew up in that household, And what's amazing is years after the fact, Paul thinks back to Timothy's spiritual biography. And as he thinks about the way that Timothy ultimately came to faith in Christ, he can't help but mention the fact that two of the biggest players in Timothy's life for how he came to know Jesus were his mother and his grandmother. These are two women who took deadly seriously their role in discipling Timothy, their son and grandson. These are two women who dedicated time to read and teach the Bible to Timothy. Now, it's easy when we get to some of these lists of names, like happens in 2 Timothy chapter 1, to skim over these facts. But I think this is an incredibly important piece to learn about Timothy's life because you have two women who are in this church who probably led otherwise very ordinary lives who now have a hand in every church that Timothy touches and every letter that he helps write with Paul. When we commend the ministry of motherhood and fatherhood and grandmotherhood and grandfatherhood, and if we don't have kids, when we commend ministries to nieces and nephews and the fellow kids that are in this church and the kids we find in our community, we commend a ministry of the highest order that will pay untold dividends to this church and this community. 
Paul is going to get a lot of credit for Timothy and how Timothy turns out, but Paul himself says, before I can do any of that in 2 Timothy 1, I give a nod to these two faithful women who went to bat for their son, maybe against the wishes of a Greek father who didn't believe the same things, and they discipled this young man in the Bible. That's an incredible thing. Paul comes into the midst of that beautiful relationship and he calls Timothy my true child in the faith. And that may mean that that Timothy grew up knowing the Old Testament. He grew up as a good Jew knowing his Bible. But Paul was able to share what Timothy had never heard before and that is the Messiah has arrived. Everything that's been promised to you in the Old Testament has come true. Jesus is here and he has come to deliver you from his sins. And so, Paul, so Timothy comes to faith at that point and he, and he believes in Jesus and he trusts in Jesus and Paul leaves him where he is. He goes on and he continues his ministry. Timothy begins to grow in the faith. He begins to plug in into this little house church in Lystra and Derby. And in Acts 16, Paul comes back and he finds Timothy again. And what's been happening is Timothy has been doing ministry in the church that he's been left in and the brothers are beginning to commend Timothy. They're beginning to say to Paul, hey man, you should really look at this guy, Timothy. You should really meet this person, Timothy. He's growing leaps and bounds and he's serving your church. I love this. If you want to do leadership in the church, if you want to lead the church here at CPC or elsewhere or the church Big C, do not commend yourself. There's no place in the church for that, for you to begin a ministry of self-commendation, to speak highly of yourself. This is what Timothy is doing. He rolls up his sleeves, he dives into ministry, and he finds that fellow brothers and sisters commend his ministry for him. Isn't that a wonderful picture? Now, I love what Paul does next, because he's coming to this city, brothers are talking about Timothy, that's wonderful. What Paul does next gives us a beautiful window into the ministry of multiplication for Paul. How does Paul do this? How does he see these churches planted? How does the Spirit use Paul to to multiply the work that he's doing? Well, it's right here in Acts 16 with what he does with young Timothy. When he hears he has a brother on his hands who's a relatively new convert, who's done just a little bit of ministry, I'm speaking tongue-in-cheek, But what Paul does not do is start a Sunday school class on leadership. That's not what he does. What Paul does not do is tell young Timothy, who's in his early 30s, hey man, check back with me in a decade, because then you'll be old enough to lead a church. What he does not even do is say, hey Timothy, let's get together on Tuesdays for coffee and talk about ministry. That's not what Paul does. He grabs Timothy and he says, If you want to see and learn and do what I'm doing, the only way to do that is to come with me. Come with me to the very next city, and I want to show you what it's like to walk into a city and preach the gospel. What an incredible strategy of discipleship. Whatever we're doing, wherever we're going, to grab somebody and say, hey, I could tell you about how to disciple. I could tell you about how to do evangelism, but I want to show you. I want you to watch me do it, and then I want you to do the exact same things in your life. That's what Paul is doing for Timothy. And what begins is this beautiful, affectionate, discipling relationship between Paul and Timothy. It's wonderful to read about that, and we're going to be exposed to a lot of it in these two letters. We're going to learn very quickly as we read First and Second Timothy that Timothy is not Paul. 
He's a very, very different person from Paul. In fact, some of the ways we talk about Paul as this superhuman church planter who wasn't afraid of anything, I think Paul is not Paul. But all the more so, Timothy is not Paul. We're going to see ways that he's very different. And I think it's incredibly critical for us to realize this on the front end as we dive into these two letters to realize that Timothy was a real person because that's going to affect the way we read these letters. If we, can, if we can set aside Timothy as a saint and a superhuman and a super apostle, then everything that Paul's about to write to Timothy doesn't really apply to us. We say that's great for Timothy, that's great for a church planner, that's great for a guy like him who grew up under Paul, that's wonderful for him. What about me? Let me get back in the Psalms. What we're actually saying is Timothy is a three-dimensional character. He's a real person with real struggles, and we get to get little hints of this as we read through these letters. I mean, 1 Timothy chapter 4, we learn that Timothy is not only young, but that people give him a hard time about it, and he's a little insecure about his age. Paul needs to write to Timothy and say, hey man, I don't want you to let people push you around because of your age. It's okay that you're young. Contend for the faith. Paul, uh, Timothy is young and he's insecure about his age. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, we learn that Timothy is timid. He's apprehensive. He struggles with anxiety. Paul tells him in 2 Timothy 1, Hey, Timothy, that spirit, those voices that you hear in your head that tempt you to fear and anxiety, that's not God speaking to you because that's not the way God speaks to you. He doesn't speak with an anxious voice. He doesn't speak with a voice that draws you into fear and apprehension and timidity. God has given us a spirit of power, but the reason Paul needs to write that to Timothy is Timothy still doesn't get it. He's a timid person and he's an anxious person. Finally, in 1 Timothy 5, we learn that Timothy has stomach trouble. He's got frequent ailments of his stomach. We don't know if he has a bad case of IBS, a little irritable bowel syndrome, or this is anxiety-related, or he's just got a poor constitution. Whatever the reason, Timothy is constantly getting sick, and Paul needs to set aside time to write to Timothy to say, hey man, take care of your body. I know that you're regularly sick. I know that you have stomach issues, but you need to watch out for yourself. What emerges from all these kind of embarrassing hints about the person Timothy is a three-dimensional person, right? It's a person who struggles with fear, who struggles with anxiety, who doesn't have the best health in the world. He's a real person with real struggles, and he is walking into the lion's den of ministry in Ephesus. Can you and I put our feet in Timothy's shoes for just a moment and to reflect on all the ways that we think about our shortcomings? When we think about our lack of maturity and our struggles with sin and with anxiety and with depression and the ways we don't feel gifted for ministry and taking all of that and listening to what God is calling us to, that's the very situation that Timothy finds himself in and that's immediately universal to all of us. All of us experience that in the Christian life. That spiritual framework makes Paul's opening words to Timothy all the sweeter in verse 2. He says to him, grace, mercy, and peace. What Paul is doing is he's grabbing the traditional Greek greeting. You greeted one another in Greek culture by saying grace in a letter. And he's taking the Jewish greeting. You greeted one another saying peace or shalom to one another. And he's combining Greek and Jewish for a man who's both Greek and Jewish. 
But when he does that, it is entirely bathed and baptized in Christian meeting because the gospel explodes behind these three words. Paul is essentially writing to Timothy, Timothy, God's grace is with you. He's delivered you. You've passed from darkness into life. His grace is with you. His mercy is on you. You know that his mercies are fresh and new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. His peace, Timothy, it abounds for you. Jesus is the prince of peace and he can steady the most anxious hearts and the most upset stomachs. And then he says to Timothy this, Timothy, you're my true child in the faith. I had a hand in whatever way in your conversion to Christ. I'm like a spiritual father to you. And probably I'm a father to you in many ways that your, your physical dad, who's never again mentioned in the Bible, ever was to you. I'm like your spiritual dad. But more importantly than anything I've just said, is I act like a signpost, not to point you to your spiritual father, but up and away above me to verse 2, God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I think about, Timothy, your ministry in walking into this lion's den, as I think about the real person that you are and all the struggles and sins that dog you, that you die to daily, if I could tell you anything, it's that the gospel is real. It's that there is grace and mercy and peace for you. And all of that comes not just from me, your friend and your spiritual father, but your father's father. There is a heavenly father who watches over you who has redeemed you and will give you peace. Let's pray together.